This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, and we continue on our journey through the Gospel of Luke. We will be looking at verses 27 through 32, and the title of the sermon today is Not the Righteous. Our key words for our worshipers in training are follow, righteous, and sinner. In his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton asks the question, what would things actually look like if Satan took over a city? He goes on to explain, the first frames in our imaginative slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale, widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, and worshipers dragged off to City Hall. Then Horton goes on to explain that he heard an explanation from Pastor Donald Barnhouse when he was asked the same question, what would it look like if Satan took control of a town in America? And he said all of the bars and pool halls would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The kids would answer, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and the churches would be full on Sundays. Perhaps you might hear that and think, what's wrong with that? Why would that be Satan's desire? We have to remember, according to Genesis 3, Satan has more PhDs than you and I will ever have. He is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Deception... It's his greatest tool. The most deadly condition, the most horrendous environment that any culture can find themselves in is not one of warfare and violence and every kind of sin imaginable, unrestrained and on full display. That's too obvious and it's, it's too easy to spot. Perhaps the most deadly evil condition a culture can find itself in looks a lot more like Mayberry than it does a city that's been bombed out and left for dead. Think of it. When you ask a person who has nothing if they need something, the answer most likely comes quickly and without hesitation. Yes, please help me, I'm in desperate need. But to the one who seems to have it all, help? I'm good. Could it be that we live in a time and a culture when our neighbors and perhaps even some of us are saying that we're good? As long as we've gone through the right steps, we've done the right things and keep doing the right things, that we're fine. I hear it often when I ask people about their conversion to Christ. Well, I was, I was raised in the church. I went every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. I went on Wednesday nights, went to small group during the week, grew up in the youth group, helped with vacation Bible school, and my grandpa was a pastor and my daddy was a deacon. Right, that's good to hear, but please tell me about your conversion to Christ. Tell me about when God saved you. Well, I was baptized when I was 10 years old, and you know, 
I had some wild years in college, but I've straightened my life up now and I'm trying harder and harder each and every day to do right. You know, because God won't do His part unless I do mine. But you see, here's the problem with that. It's not the gospel. And it's completely void of Jesus Christ. Satan is absolutely delighted to see a people who do what are perceived to be the right things in the right way. They don't drink, they don't cuss, they don't smoke, they don't vote for Democrats or watch R-rated movies or miss opportunities to slap cute motivational sayings on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a poster. They may even go to church every Sunday and go to all the Christian movies to make sure they stay in the theaters, but their focus is on their activities and what they are and aren't doing, so much so that they miss Jesus altogether. And I realize that I might be accused of exaggerating here, but I would encourage you to just listen to people talk. Not so much what is said, but more so what isn't. Any conversation about our conversion that is focused on how good we are now, but not focused on Christ, and any recognition of our struggle with sin and our recognition of God's grace in our lives is a really dangerous place to be. This is what we've talked about so often, not the gospel. This is moralism. The gospel subtly turning into being about doing right and working hard to motivate change in our own lives. It's a really distorted view of the fallenness of mankind. The problem that we focus on doesn't become our sinful nature as human beings, but rather individual sins that just need to be eradicated. You see the difference? Do you see the harm here? All of the sudden, the gospel isn't basing all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our satisfaction upon the grace of God to save us and sustain us and give give us motivation for obedience to please Him and do all that He commands for His glory. Recognizing all along that we will sin that we need to live lives of repentance, that our brokenness will affect every aspect of our being. But thanks be to God that we, by the life and obedience and death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next in this life. You see, moralism takes that and turns it into an exhausting game where the main goal if you can imagine taking a bucket of ping-pong balls and throwing them into a bathtub full of water. The goal of moralism is to take all of these sins, all of these ping-pong balls in the water and try to hold them down to make sure they don't pop up to the surface. In other words, they're, they're there, but they just need to be suppressed. And when they pop up, I need to work hard to do whatever is possible to push them back down. So we devise a list of sins that we think we can easily manage instead of focusing on the reality that the issue isn't sins, plural. The issue is our nature as sinful human beings. 
we must constantly depend upon the power of God's grace to make us more and more into His image and likeness. And the danger for the church as a whole is that we become a smug, loveless, self-righteous people who forget what Christ has actually done for us because we're too busy holding ping-pong balls under the water. Kent Hughes explains the radical, regenerating work of Christ sours when redeemed people lose sight of their continuing need. When they forget that though their eternal future is secure, in their daily walk they are frail and needy. The church can easily become a self-righteous subculture with no room or sympathy for sinners. Reminded once again of the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not recognizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. May God help us to not be a self-righteous people dependent upon creative maneuvers to keep ping-pong balls from popping up out of the water. Can we all admit together that we are broken and fallen and needy people who are nothing without Jesus, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute? That's gospel living, and Satan hates that. A firm, sure dependence upon Christ because we know that we, in and of ourselves, are nothing at all. And as we look at the text this morning, we see this stark contrast between the pitiful, sinful state of man, one who recognizes his need, compared to that of the self-righteous. All my ducks in a row hypocrites. The ones that everyone thought were really moral, hard-working people. But they always seem to have a stern gaze down their nose at those sinners out there. So let's read together, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 5 in the Gospel of Luke. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, as we've seen already, Luke is building his case. And the examples are growing and growing of what Jesus' intentions are. He's constantly showing Jesus' concern and compassion and care and relentless pursuit of the broken, sinful outcasts of society while having strong, clear, rebuking words for those who are outwardly moral, self-righteous hypocrites. Jesus calls on those of humble, repentant hearts, not the, the haughty, I'm a good person types, 
who learned just last week how to hold down yet another ping-pong ball under the water. Thank you very much. And in drawing this contrast, Luke is bringing into focus the dark backdrop of the world and the sinfulness of self-righteousness by shining the light of Jesus on each of these situations. The darkness of demonic activity repelled by the light of Jesus and casting Him out. The darkness of physical sickness and suffering replaced with the light of Jesus' healing Word. The darkness of unbelief driven out by the light of Jesus' power and authority. The darkness of sinful hearts aflame with the light of the forgiveness and compassion of Jesus. And here we see the darkness of the pharisaical hearts exposed by the light of the grace of Jesus and His concern for the sinners of the world. It is this. Jesus' concern for sinful man and His rebuke of unbelieving self-righteousness. It is this that we see here this morning. So let's look first at the life of the tax collector named Levi. Now, it doesn't take long in reading through the Bible to figure out that the tax collectors were not a very respectable lot. That's an understatement. They were the most hated men in all of Jewish society. And I know if you're anything like me, your instant reaction is to say, well, of course, they're tax collectors. When they were 15 years old, they were saying, when I grow up, I want to be a bureaucrat. Who says that? Tax collectors were not allowed to testify in court as a witness. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. They were hated. Not only because their profession was very dishonest and included a great deal of theft, but also because they were Jewish men who were working for the Roman government. Tax collection and the profession of the tax collector was very different in the first century than it is today. Today is a legitimate profession, whether we like it or not. We render unto Caesar what is his. And yet in the first century, it was a very different type of work. The title itself, tax collector, was essentially synonymous with abuse. Nobody knew of an honest tax collector. Most commonly, you will read the term sinners and tax collectors or prostitutes and tax collectors, always considering tax collectors in the same category as those who are the most wretched of society, the most despised, the bottom rung of human existence. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, which is the teachings of the rabbis, it was written that tax collectors were robbers. The Roman government thought of them in the same category as those who were, uh, who were owners and keepers of brothels. There was absolutely no question in the minds of anyone whatsoever that these men, these robbers, these extortioners, these mafia men were the worst of the world. So the drama of what unfolds when Jesus encounters Levi would be a huge deal to anyone who saw or heard what was going on. The plot has thickened. Jesus is doing what the religious leaders of the day thought unthinkable. 
He was associating with the worst of the worst. We see here in verse 27, Levi is sitting at the tax booth. Therefore, everyone to see a heartless, cutthroat, brutal criminal that was the most hated of the entire community. And Jesus walks over to Levi and simply says, follow me. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, he could have just as easily said, you're just the kind of guy that I want to be one of my apostles. Let's go. Really? Me? Yes. Perfect fit. That Levi's a lot like the prophet Isaiah here, isn't he? Remember Isaiah 6? is this great vision of the heavenly throne room and he sees Jesus high and lifted up. And instantly he falls to his face and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He recognizes instantly his sinfulness before the Lord. And the Lord gives him a command that essentially says to Isaiah, You are exactly what I'm looking for. A man who understands just how sinful he really is. It was very simple. Follow me. And this is the very thing that Jesus told you if you're a Christian. You were content in your sin, living a life unconcerned with God, unconcerned with anyone other than yourself. And Jesus said, follow me. And instantly your heart was changed. You became a new creation and all of your affections and all of your desires and all of your pursuits were challenged because you had new eyes. You had a new heart. You began to see the beauty of the glory of God. You saw the necessity of Jesus as Savior and Lord in your life. The necessity to do as we see Levi do. Now here's the really important thing about these two little words that Jesus speaks to Levi. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Levi, listen here, man. Your life is a terrible mess. Look, I really want you on my team, but you're going to have to do some work to clean yourself up first. I need for you to go ahead and make sure that you turn this thing around and become a good person so that I can use you, man, because you've got what I'm looking for. But as of right now, there's a lot of work for you to do. This is important. Because I've met many people who will tell me, you know, this all sounds good and right. But I'm just not good enough. You know, I've got all these things in my life. I've got a lot of things that I've done. I had a guy tell me once, listen, I'm not just going to hell. I'm driving the bus to get there. There is no way I could ever go to heaven. There is no way I could ever not go to hell. But you see, that's the point, isn't it? Why did Jesus choose Levi to be a disciple? Levi, by the way, is the disciple Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to see the contrast. But why did Jesus choose him? One of the most hated men in all of the region. Why did Jesus go to him and call on him to follow him? He's one of the most notorious criminals. 
Because Jesus saw the heart of Matthew and he knew that he understood himself to be wretched and miserable, that he was a prisoner to his sin, blind in his unbelief, oppressed by the trappings of the sinful pursuits for wealth and power. What does Jesus require of you? Not that you clean yourself up, because you can't. God's standard is perfection, perfectly fulfilling the law of God. Have you ever lied? Have you ever used God's name in vain or coveted something someone else owns? Then you've already fallen short. You're already condemned. Jesus doesn't require you to come to Him all cleaned up because you can't clean yourself up. Jesus requires that you recognize your sinful condition and repent of your sin and follow Him. Do you have horrendous sin in your life? Do you wonder how God could ever forgive you? Are you disgusted by your sin, your selfishness, your pride, your greed, your lying, your stealing to get ahead? Run to Jesus. Fall at His feet, repent of, his, of your sin, and follow Him. Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect fulfillment of all that God has commanded, and He has done so on behalf of His people. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to fulfill the law for us, to bear the penalty as the perfect, final, spotless sacrifice, and He credits it as perfect righteousness to His people. It's the great exchange. My sin placed on Christ, His righteousness placed upon me. Friend, if you see yourself standing in the tax booth with Levi this morning, full of sin, run to Jesus. He's calling you. Follow me. He makes the foulest sinners clean. Let's look how Levi responds in verse 28. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, something has stood out to me. Notice how different Levi's response is compared to, for example, the rich young ruler. We all know the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus, discerning the heart of the rich young ruler and his love for all of his riches, tells him, go sell all that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come, follow me. And the young man, Mark writes, was disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A very different response than Levi, isn't it? Now, it's important to point out here that Levi was indeed a very rich man. Tax collectors were wealthy because of all that they had done. Now, by no means were they rich by righteous gain, but they were wealthy nonetheless. But what Luke records that Levi, when he records that Levi left everything, he's not saying that he sold all of his possessions. You see, Jesus wasn't ultimately concerned about the rich young ruler's stuff. He was dealing with the man's heart. He knew Levi's heart, and Levi's idol wasn't his stuff or his money. 
The call to Jesus is a call away from idolatry, a call away from false worship. Levi left his false worship behind and followed Jesus. He walked away immediately from his career of thuggery and crime and followed Jesus. And the literal sense of the statement in verse 28 is that Levi immediately rose up, left everything behind, and began the process of following Jesus, which he continued throughout his entire life. There's a little Greek principle here that indicates a continuous action. Levi was following him. And this is proof of the real work of salvation in his life. Real conversion is evidenced by a continuous following of Jesus, seeking to obey Jesus, not so that outward actions could show some kind of worth or goodness, but rather out of a desire to honor the Lord and bring glory to Him. Levi made a decisive break, and there's a continuous pattern of walking in the way of Jesus throughout his entire life. He was regenerated. He was humble. He was a new creation. He had new longings, new affections, a new mind, a new will. And you know what's amazing in all of this? Who approached whom in this situation? Notice, Jesus sought out Levi. It wasn't the other way around. Jesus called on Levi to follow him. Levi didn't come running to find Jesus, seeking him out. He was sitting in the tax booth. And that's how it is for us, isn't it? But without looking for it, Jesus discerns the heart of Levi, calls him to follow, and grants him forgiveness, gives him salvation, gives him a new righteousness. All the things that the religious leaders of the day told Levi were impossible for him because he was such a horrible sinner. But Christ saw in the disfigured life of Levi the tax collector, a Matthew, a writer, an evangelist, a collector of souls. He sees us, sinners, all of our moral deformities, but he sees us through the ultimate artist's eye. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. No matter how scarred and how ugly a sinner's life may be, Christ can make it into something beautiful for the glory of God. He has devoted His life to it. And this is the very thing He did with Levi, who became Matthew. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him... And I kind of chuckled when I read this because... In good southern vernacular, someone could mistake that to mean that Levi made something for himself. Levi made him a great feast. He's talking actually about making something for Jesus. He made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. You know, this is one of the things that should be celebrated the most. 
When Jesus makes someone into a new creation, Levi recognized what happened in his heart. He spared no expense to celebrate. This wasn't a selfish feast. This wasn't for selfish reasons. It was a celebration. A celebration of Jesus. A celebration of what He had just done. Ecclesiastes reminds us that feasting is a time for laughter and merriment. And this ex-tax collector regarded the change in his life as an occasion for rejoicing. And indeed it was. Nothing is a greater occasion for rejoicing than our conversion. J.C. Ryle has it right. He wrote this, It is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families. The family of God. Coming to know Christ is a great reason to party. But notice what else is going on here. Luke records that Levi made Jesus a great feast. Jesus was the guest of honor, without whom none of this celebration would matter. None of it would be happening. And notice who Levi invites. A large company of tax collectors and others. Having immediately experienced the transformation of Jesus in his own life, Levi had to invite the sinners that he knew that they too might be exposed to the Savior. He wanted to gather everyone around that he knew to introduce them to Jesus. And you know, think about this. If you're going to have a party and the guest of honor is the most popular rabbi in the land, who are you going to invite? Well, it would have been assumed that it would be a party that the Pharisees were invited to. The teachers of the law. The Sadducees, perhaps. Maybe some people from the upper class of respectable society. But that's not what we see. Why? Because the only people that Levi knew were sinners. And I love how Luke says it. There were tax collectors there and others. Yes, other sinners. But he really wants to point out these tax collectors because the people hated them so much. But think of this scene. Thieves, thugs, hitmen, enforcers, drunkards, prostitutes, all kinds of criminals and outcasts. All there dining with the Son of God. They were reclining at table with Him. They ate, they laughed, they talked. And I assure you, for Jesus, it wasn't just talk about the weather and the crops. I'm certain He was teaching them. Telling them of the kingdom of God and the glorious truths of the Word of God. And many of you find yourselves in a place like this every day because you have jobs that bring you into contact with with sinful people who scoff at the idea of ever entering the doors of a church on a Sunday morning. You work among people who hate God and and joke about their eternal destiny in hell. You have a mission field where you are. 
an opportunity to do as Jesus and live your life in their midst to the glory of God. One of the really neat things I get to see in the lives of new believers is their excitement for Christ and how all of that bubbles over into conversations and challenges to their friends who at the time of their conversion are whom? Sinners. You know, the longer we're Christians, the more and more all of our friends are also Christians. But we need to find ways to engage those who see no hope for salvation. Those who have no idea that Jesus is their only hope. Those who think they have no escape from hell. So this was it. A celebration. A party to rejoice in Levi no longer being Levi. He was now Matthew. And it was an evangelistic dinner. And Jesus was there to proclaim the truth. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Jesus reclining at the table, receiving sinners. And I'm certain they all spoke about it for many days beyond. Now look at how the Pharisees and the scribes responded. Verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You can hear it in their words. They were shocked. They were disgusted. They were enraged. They cornered Jesus' disciples and they started to berate them. Why are you doing this with these people? This man, Jesus, he claims to speak the word of God. And he's among the filthiest, the most unclean. It's shameful. It's a disgrace. Obviously, they assumed there was something of a desire on the part of Jesus and his, his disciples to be keepers of the law. But what we will see time and again is that Jesus' concern was the true use of God's law. Not the Pharisees' excesses, these burdens that were heavy and they weighed upon the backs of God's people. And so all throughout Jesus' ministry, we will see Him exposing the false teaching of the Pharisees, removing the masks of righteousness, and pointing out the disgusting, vile darkness of their hearts. They are already resenting Jesus, but we will see it build and build in the weeks ahead. They were shocked. They were outraged by Jesus, the friend of sinners and tax collectors. Why are you doing this? Don't you know they're unclean? How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees' question to the disciples was an intended rebuke as to say, you know, no truly righteous person would ever be caught dead with those low lives. Who in the world do you think you are with them? Why is this man Jesus in that place? The Pharisees really thought that there was no sin within themselves. They thought they were righteous. Why? Because they did all the right things externally. They assumed that anyone who was opposed to them, anyone who did not uphold what they upheld to the T, was an enemy of God. A heretic. 
Anything but the conduct they pursued was iniquity. Anyone who questioned their righteousness questioned God and was a blasphemer. But Jesus overheard their statement and he hit them right between the eyes. It's almost sarcastic in a way. Jesus tells them, in a sense, You're already healthy. Why does a healthy man need a doctor? I'm here for the sick. You're righteous already. I'm here to make the sinners righteous. Of course, we know that Jesus was exposing a righteousness that would not get the Pharisees into heaven. It was a righteousness of their own that was evil and opposed to God. They were a people who were very proud of their religious obedience and their adherence to their self-made laws. They were a people who loved to be recognized for their goodness. It never occurred to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that their lack of concern for sinners and their cavalier mercilessness had distanced them from God. These experts had the Scriptures but they'd failed to truly read them. They didn't care about the souls of sinners. Their mercilessness was a sign of their unregenerate hearts. And you know, if you consider the craftiness of Satan and what he would do to ensure everyone that they were good to go, it would be important to see to it that everyone saw themselves as righteous and unable and unwilling to associate with the likes of tax collectors, because to do so would be unclean. I've met a lot of people, and when I say this, I include many of you who have said, you know, I grew up in church, and I heard the same things over and over. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't fornicate, don't watch bad movies, don't listen to bad music. Don't hang out with the wrong crowd. Don't date girls with more than two pierced ears. Don't leave the house with your shirt untucked. Don't put your elbows on the table. On and on. But then I got to be of an age when it seemed like the right thing to do was to get baptized, so I did. But my life was the same. I was never changed. I never actually knew the gospel. I knew that Jesus died for my sins, but I didn't know what that meant other than I'm going to sin and it's okay because in the end, Jesus took care of it for me. And then I went off to college, lived my life no different than everyone else, and then decided it was finally time to get serious and run back to my list. But it kept failing me. I've heard it a million times. In our culture, when everyone thinks that they're a Christian, This is a very common theme. But here's the problem. While some of those things I mentioned aren't necessarily bad things to be concerned about, in fact, many of them are related to our holiness as Christians. But doing or not doing these things in and of themselves is not what saves you. We are in a culture, especially here in the South, that thinks church attendance, yes sir and yes ma'am, and bless her heart, and keeping your beer in the refrigerator in the garage so nobody sees it when they come over, is what makes a man righteous. That is not the gospel. This is moralism and it's damning. 
Jesus didn't come into the world to make us good people. That is exactly what Satan wants. Because it's completely void of Christ. Satan loves when we take good things like teaching our children to say, Yes, sir. And turn them into eternal things that give us a sense of satisfaction. That someone is saved because they've got their stuff together. They're good people. We must beware that we not become moralized right out of the kingdom of heaven. You know, there are a lot of really good people in hell today. We could easily become a club, an elite society that says and does a lot of good things, but hates sinners and thinks very highly of ourselves. We must never forget that we are sinners. That each and every one of us can say with all honesty and all integrity of our hearts, if we understand our condition, I am the worst of sinners. As we did not deserve it, we did not even want it, but God showed us great mercy. Oh, how dark my heart when Jesus came to call me that I would follow him. Friend, Jesus didn't come to make you good. He came to rescue you from yourself and to give you new life. Repent of your goodness and cling to Jesus. He is your only hope. And if you've not come to Christ, but you hear him saying this morning, follow me, leave everything, rise up, and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for so clearly showing us in the scriptures what the gospel truly is. And thank you for giving us a desire and a longing to get it right and to not fall into the trap of the Pharisees. To live lives of seeking to suppress individual sins but never dealing with the nature of our hearts, our sinful hearts that cannot live up to all that you have required and are in desperate need of Jesus. Thank you for showing us time and time and time again through your word that we in and of ourselves are helpless and broken and needy. But reminding us all the more that Christ is sufficient. Christ is there and Christ is calling. Thank you, O oh Lord, for giving us hearts of obedience. Hearts that desire to do as your word says, to do good works, not for the sake of doing good works, not for our salvation, but because our desire is to honor you, to please you, to bring glory to you. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to look at your commandments and seek to obey them for the right reason. Not to earn your favor and not to gain salvation but as people who are in Christ, for those of us who are, 
that we would do so to bring glory to you. Help us, O God, to recognize the self-righteousness in our own hearts, to repent of it, and to walk faithfully as a people who without Christ are the lowest of low. And Lord, I pray that as we come into contact with Levi's, that you would give us a heart for them, pity and compassion like Christ, and that we would call on them to follow Jesus, to repent of their sin, to lay their life of sin aside, and to walk in the new life of Christ. Please do that, Lord. Do that in our midst, that we could glorify you and rejoice and celebrate the great work of redemption in the lives of your people. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we pray, God, that you are glorified today in all of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.